The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. It's getting more placid the way you say it. Well, I just I want everyone to be chill about it. Like it's, I, I hate it when you get mail and you're just like, oh god, what's in the mail? Is there more mails? <laughs> like, no, this is good mail. This is fun like mail. It. This is mail from our friends. Everybody likes getting mail. That's not true at oh, all. Okay. The older you get, the less true that is. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. Uh, I also am a film critic. Uh, I'm called Rockmeister McCool for the purposes of this podcast. I still like getting mail, especially from our listeners. Okay. Although uh, I have a five-year-old son, and he is subscribed to something called Little Passports. Once oh, is that like Ranger Rick or something? Or? No, it's it's a fun thing. Uh, the first month, they send you like a suitcase, and it's got like an empty coin holder and a little passport you can fill out yourself. Oh, that sounds and cool. And a, a letter from these imaginary characters who are going to get on a magic scooter and travel around the world. And every month, you get a new letter from these characters. They're in a new location. They send you a little money. They send you some stickers. That's you cool. Put, and you can put pins on a map. It's really cool. That sounds... I would have loved that when yeah. I was a kid. Yeah, that yeah, sounds amazing. I'd love that now. There, there's all, there's really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having a wonderful time, time discovering like what kids can get now. That's nice. It's yeah. nice that it's all cool stuff. Well, not all cool stuff. But, you know, it's nice that there's still there's, cool, there's stuff, cool stuff out, out there. there. It isn't yeah. like totally dystopian out there for kids entertainment. That's great. Yeah. Um. Anyway, this podcast. This is we've got mail. This is where we read uh, emails, answer questions, respond to criticisms, uh, talk about history of pop culture. People can get to know us better. Whatever you want, really. The stage is yours. You can write in. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And we don't like to dilly-dally right up front. This time is yours. So, Whitney, away we go. Here we go. Here's a letter from Sammy. Hello, Sammy. Hi, Sammy. Uh, Dear Rockmeister McCool and that other guy. Oh, that's... That's fair. (laughs) That's fair. I've been called that before. I I think people tune in. I think you're the star of the show. That's not true And I'm the supporting player. That is... That is... That is... We are are a two-hander. We are you can't camera. you can't have Amadeus without Salieri. You got to have them both. They're they're both lead actors. Yeah, you know, Amadeus took a lot of liberty. The, the tweet I heard recently: Amadeus took a lot of liberties with the the life of Mozart, but the movie Beethoven turned him into a dog, and that's not accurate at all. At all, you saw that on Twitter somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. I'm, I'm quoting a, a tweet. Okay, uh, dear Rockers, we're cool and that other guy. My name is Sammy. I'm 19 and I live in Israel. Wow, that's awesome. Hello. Um, for the past year and a half, I've been in a pre-army program dedicated to study where we can study whatever we want in a Beth Midrash, a study hall with a huge library around us. We can study by ourselves in pairs and groups and in classes. I've been studying the Garden of Eden, thought on film, the Talmud, innocence, and childhood. I want to do a study group of four to five meetings where we take a movie and analyze it to death. In the first meeting, we will watch the movie. In the second and third, we will rewatch the movie and stop at any moment someone says stop and talk about that moment. And in the fourth meeting, I bring articles that talk about the movie and in the last meeting, people bring different texts that the movie reminds them of, and we talk about the movie as a whole. Two questions. What movie do you think deserves that sort of treatment, hmm. and what do you think of that format? I was thinking about doing a study of The Seventh Seal or about The 400 Blows. 
And uh, he even attached a little picture of, of what that library looks like. Oh, that's a cool-looking library. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for all your content, and thank you for answering my question, Sammy. Um, Sammy, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, close analysis of film is something that is a real joy mm-hmm. to do. Um, too often, film critics get to watch a movie once, and then we have to talk at length about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get good at what you do. You get observant. You understand you know a lot about how it works, and you can do that, but... Uh, I think almost any movie would benefit from close analysis, whether it's good or bad. You'll learn more about it. You'll learn more about the creative decisions. Mm-hmm. I um, I noticed that... Uh, are there any movies you watch every year, just either just because or on purpose? Uh, no longer. Okay. Like those those traditions are gone for me. All right. I, there's one movie I watch every year. It's Christmas in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I, not that it's the greatest movie ever, but it's actually a really good screenplay, and I notice different things about it every single time. So mm-hmm. as I get to know it better and better shot for shot, I learn more. Um, watching films once and then watching them you know slowly pausing whenever you see something interesting, it's a great way to analyze anything. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of films that really really benefit from it because they were that well thought out. Mm. The first one that comes to mind is actually uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Okay. Uh, which is, first off, just a great thriller. Uh, if, you, if you haven't heard of it, if anyone hasn't heard of it, it stars James Stewart as a photographer uh, who is sort of a daredevil photographer. He's always getting himself into dangerous situations to get the shot. He gets himself in too dangerous a situation, and now both his legs are broken, and he's just trapped in his apartment. And all he's got to do is look out his rear window and in the courtyard and at all of his neighbors and snoop. And then one night he thinks he sees one of his neighbors kill their wife. (laughs) The neighbor who's played by Raymond Burr. Yeah. Really good, intimidating, imposing actor. Um, It's a really smart film. And if you watch it over and over again, you'll notice that, for example, all of the neighbors have problems that mirror the various issues that are going through James Stewart's life. Uh, issues of relationships, of artistry, of uh, anxieties about marriage. Uh, so that's really cool. You'll notice that every single shot in the film is from the perspective of his apartment. Mm. So we're always the voyeur. Um, that's a really, really good one. And every time I watch that movie, I notice cool new things. What about yeah. you? What else comes to mind as a really good um, choice for that? I I remember uh, reading some articles uh, from Roger Ebert, who... Mm. Uh, and and he wasn't the only one who did this. There was a, uh, some film festival that organized a special kind of uh, analysis a thon essentially, mm-hmm. where they would uh, go through every film shot by shot, and they would pause at every edit and analyze what they had just seen. Yeah, and this took days to go through yeah. a single. film. And again, no one should be no. watching that in that thing if they haven't seen the movie once. No, the, at the, least once. The idea be, is you're yeah. familiar with the film, and now you're really going to pick it apart. Yeah, and uh, uh, in, in that. Uh, series in that st- sort of study series. They did Citizen Kane, of course. Yeah. Uh, they did Fight Club. Uh, which yeah, that worked. I, I remember Roger Ebert writing about that because he didn't like that movie. Mm-hmm. He thought it was too cool for its own good. And he makes a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so there's so many creative decisions in it. Yeah, I think it yeah, would benefit and, and it's, yeah, that, it's yeah. really sort of like really wildly shot. Um, it, it's difficult to say because I I'm of the mind, and this is speaking as somebody who worked at movie who's worked at movie theaters his whole life and mm-hmm. has seen or heard some movies uh, 10, 20, 30 times without trying. If you watch a movie enough, you kind of get on its wavelength. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how good or bad it is. You just sort of start to understand it. It gets into your DNA in a weird way. Yeah. So uh, when... It becomes family uh, almost. Pardon? It becomes family almost. Yeah. Good or bad doesn't matter anymore. It's just just there. Yeah, it's just sort of in, in your brain and it's kind of hard to start to analyze after a while. 
I would be interested to see what would happen if somebody tried to give this deep analytical approach to a completely forgotten, mediocre kind of movie. Mm. Like um, American Assassin. Carpool with Tom Arnold <laughs> and David Paymer. Watch that movie shot for shot. See yeah. what you can delve out of that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a podcast called, I think it was called The Best Worst Idea We've Ever Had. Or, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. and the idea was uh, every week they were going to rewatch Grown Ups 2 and see like how like what it did to their brains. It was yeah. like this weird art experiment. Fascinating idea. Yeah. Fascinating yeah. idea. Hell of a and choice. That movie is terrible. It's not a good movie. <laughs> it's so bad. And I don't it's, know if I can do it's that not even one. like caustically offensive like yeah, some of Adam Sandler's other movies. There are some, some parts of it are, but you know, like I it's I could like, do that easier than I could do that with That's My Boy, which mm-hmm. I think is is repulsive. Um now films that actually deserve it, films that actually you you want to look really closely at The Seventh Seal is a good one, although good I think one. I think Persona might warrant a closer study just cuz that's a little bit more abstract. There's a little mm. bit more going on. You'll in have a really interesting conversation out of Persona. Yeah. I think you would under Seventh Seal, mm-hmm. but I think Persona, it's people are going to bring so much of themselves yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, some of Kurosawa's films would definitely be worth mm. study. I remember when we we went uh, through uh, Yojimbo. Oh yeah, I was. Uh, and Yojimbo is really good from a filmmaking perspective because a a it's a really cynical movie, which is a rarity for Kurosawa. But also the main character stands in for a filmmaker throughout a lot of that. So his yeah, perspective he's directing kind of, the action yeah, of the town, he, he, yeah. uh, is very filmic in the way he's viewing a lot of these things. It's so I think that fun, yeah. it's, there's this kind of a meta narrative going on. Yeah. And, and it's just a great movie. So mm-hmm. uh, that, that would be a good one. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, you can kind of just pick through a lot of classic movies like mm-hmm. 2001 there you would go. benefit from that. Mm-hmm. That would be a, a, an excellent choice of that. Um, trying to think what else a suspense film might be really really interesting if you watch something like the hurt locker uh then like cutting up the suspense and seeing how the shots work yeah that might be interesting uh to watch that um trying to think are there any comedies that would like particularly benefit from Mm this uh what are some of the more complicated comedies like the more like intricate Um, jacques tati's playtime there you go it's one of the most complicated layouts of any comedy oh i would oh uh do uh buster keaton the general Oh, there you go. There you yeah, go. something like that. Like, look at how he look at how he sets up comedic bits. Yeah. That could be really, really exciting uh, too. Um, but uh, anyway, hopefully that's a little bit to work with. But uh, that's a really, really fun thing. I miss being mm. able to do that. Yeah, have, having the uh, being in, in sort of a study environment is something mm. I really, really miss. Yeah, I, I mean, oh, I'm God, it was great. Yeah, well, re- remember that feeling you had when you were like 25 and you wish you could go back to college, and then you look at an 18 year old and you say, "Gosh, what a child." Yeah, going through that quarter life crisis. There's yeah. a, a lyric. Uh, was I ever that young? Yeah, that kind of these thing. These kids are so much younger than me to sing uh, Avenue Q. Um, so I, I, I did have that impulse when I was like 24 or 25. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? I'll just go back to college. I'll never leave. And, like, and, and I just really, because I wanted to study. Yeah, studying I, is I, great. I realized I didn't want to like live in a dorm and work on a meal plan. I just wanted to study more. So mm-hmm. luckily I was in a, a situation then that I could, and I just started reading. Uh, so unfortunately it's just a scheduling thing, yeah. but you can do it. Sure there, you can. There's, it, it's nice to have that environment where you can study really deeply, but... You can study you can anything, also, but you can, you can study, study on your own. But you can study deeply and continue to educate yourself. Yeah, if you're passionate whenever, about it, if yeah. you can, if you can make the time, if you can make that your thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, my dad continued to study world history and 
motorcycles. He studied yeah. like motorcycle mechanics like his whole life, and he was an expert in both things by long before mm-hmm. he passed away. So, um, anyway, this that's a that's a really exciting topic. I'm curious what you pick. Uh, good luck to you. Sam. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, here's another letter. This is a letter from Pedro. Hello, Pedro. Hi, Pedro. Um, Hi, Bibbs and Mr. McCool. Uh, a while back, I wrote to you and uh, told you my favorite films of the past decade from Brazil. Oh, yeah. Uh, Baccarat was in first place in that list. It was released in 2019 in Brazil. Oh. I, I just talked about it on our Best Films of the Year. You talked um, about it a couple of times. You did yeah. your catch-up episode and the Best Films of the Year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I was really happy to know Whitney enjoyed it. Uh, I, please see it. You, William, please. With everything it. going mm-hmm. on right now, it's been hard, but I do plan to see it. Yeah. It's, your recommendation means a lot to yeah. me. Uh, I actually come here to add a few things to the conversation around the movie. Whitney mentioned that the CSI team of Americans is tasked with destroying Baccarat for some reason that he didn't get. It is said in the movie that the team is actually composed of middle-class American citizens. In the near future, Udo Kier leads a company that actually sells the service of shooting down poor cities in less powerful countries to conservatives who love guns for fun. Ah. Uh, they talked about... I, I didn't think that was like their rice on Dutch. I thought it was sort of a mystery, but... Fair enough. I guess I missed that. Um, this is... Uh, this. This is discussing something that we talk about a lot in Brazil, which is the way many people here resent everything about our own country and idolize everything foreign. However, this feeling is very bad and makes up for the fact that most Brazilian art is actually niche here, not being as popular as foreign art. Uh, This takes off our identity in order to sell our resources to other more economically powerful nations. And that's why the reaction of Baccarat citizens is very cathartic for me. It's a statement that we love our land and that we will not allow others to take advantage for us. Oh, well, that's that's good to know. That's a little little cultural perspective. That adds adds a lot of that that adds that adds context. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's also worth noting that Lunga, the very macho outlaw that is called to help Baccarat, is played by Silvera Pereira, who is one of Brazil's most famous drag queens. Hmm. It's like if RuPaul played Rambo. It's bold casting, and I loved it so much. So yeah, as a genre fan, I was satisfied already with the gore and surrealistic sci-fi stuff, but the movie is a very important statement for me as a Brazilian. Thank you for the great content. Hope you have a great 2021. Love you, Pedro. Awesome. Thank you so much yeah, for that. I'm always... That gives me something to think about when I watch it for the first time. I always always value like international perspectives uh, mm-hmm. on on, on uh, films from that country mm-hmm. but also a perspective on an American film that's yeah. you know how it's being taken overseas that's the purpose of criticism mm-hmm. is to allow us the perspectives of other people as they appreciate and understand art and then mm-hmm. we can understand not only more about art but more about life and mm-hmm. the world around us and various other perspectives and cultures and that's the best stuff. So thank you for writing in. That was really, really great. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Here is a letter from Nicholas. Hi, Nicholas. Uh, greetings, Bibbs and Dr. Rockmeister McCool. Uh, first of all, I hope all is well with you and your families during these trying times. I really appreciate all the terrific podcasts you, t- you two continue to produce. I also want to thank you both for constantly bringing so much joy and passion to your work. I always come away from your podcasts and reviews reminded why I love watching movies. Oh, well. That uh, means a lot. Thank you. That's, that's, that's why I got into this. So thank yeah. you for that. Um, as these strange days continue to blend together more and more, I'm finding myself looking more for more creative ways to escape into movies. One of my favorite things to do is to curate a double or triple feature for myself of films that are related in, on some level or another. Some of my favorites have been a personal shopper paired with a ghost story mm-hmm. uh, for their explorations of grief. That's a, that's a good that makes sense. feature. Yeah, yeah. I see that. Yeah. 12 Angry Men paired with Do the Right Thing for using the hottest day of the year as a method for increasing tensions and conflict among the characters. I like it. And finally, whenever I get frustrated about the acclaim 2009's, or excuse me, 2019's Joker uh, received, as Spike Lee kindly, kindly said about Green Book, it wasn't my cup of tea, I'll instead watch Taxi Driver, You Were Never Really Here, and Christine. 
a terrific film I watched under the recommendation of you gentlemen. Ultimately, you. I'd love to know what double or triple features you both would choose for yourselves, or, recognizing that you don't have much free time to revisit old favorites, what interesting pairings or marathons would you recommend? Apologies for the long, long-winded message, Opish. Mm. Uh, thanks again for all you do, and hello to Luca and to Sergio. Oh. Stay safe, Nicholas. Um, well, Luca says hello, Luca. and if you've been following Twitter... Uh, you may have heard about Sergio, and yes. um, we had a lot of really wonderful people say a lot of really wonderful things. Yeah. Um, and I won't go into a lot of detail. I want to uh, yeah. bum everybody out, but um, uh, it's uh, Sir, we, we're going through a lot. Yeah, uh, but Sir, thank you so much. Sir, and Sir, obviously, this Sir, letter was written Sergio, earlier. And Sergio lived to be a healthy to the healthy age of nineteen, uh, which possibly is, even twenty. Possibly, it's hard to uh, say, uh, tell exactly when he was born. So, yeah. and I, um, I love when you ha- live with a cat so long you forget its age. That's kind of yeah. sweet. Uh, so, so Sergio is sitting on a counter somewhere, stealing <laughs> food, stealing food somewhere, uh, being very happy. Cat of legend will will yeah. not be forgotten ever, yeah. and uh, we love him and thank you so much for your kind regards. And obviously, that letter was written earlier, and yeah. um, it it means a lot to us. Um, so, uh, regarding double features and triple features, um, love them; yeah. they're the best. Uh, we did a whole podcast based around the idea of double features, specifically the idea that. Uh, double features could be used as a film criticism in and of themselves. Yeah. That just by juxtaposing two films, you illuminate elements of both. So mm. our old show, The Two Shot, uh, was based on the idea that uh, you could take any of the most notorious movies ever made and pair them up with a great movie and learn a lot about both. Yeah, you have to have them complement one another. Yeah. The best one, I think we ever, I think we did two that were really brilliant. There was mm. one where we did Bicycle Thieves and Jingle All the Way, and we found yeah, out they're, they're basically the same film, but one is a Hollywood ending. Uh, and the other one was The Rules of the Game and Caddyshack 2, which was <laughs> surprisingly effective. I was also proud of our, our pairing of Kazam with The Man Who Fell to Earth. No, that, oh yeah, that, that was a pretty good. That, that was a pretty was, good pair up. As that well. was a good one. That was, yeah. I think that was your idea, but that that was a good one. <laughs> that was a good one. Um, yeah, uh, programming as criticism is yeah. is uh, very valuable to me. It wasn't until I started going to repertory houses on the regular mm-hmm. that I realized that programming could be used as a form of criticism. And uh, yeah, when you put a film in a series with other movies, you start to reconsider it a little bit. Yeah, uh, if you say here's like the ten best comedies of all time and. Carpool with Tom Arnold is squeezed in there. You're going to watch that and reconsider it a little yeah, bit like, differently. Oh, really? If you, okay, yeah. if you say so, Some, I guess I'll somebody, give it a chance. Somebody yeah. put it this way. Um, I remember when uh, the Garbage Pail Kids movie was playing at uh, the, Cine, the now defunct Cine Family. Yeah. Uh, great programming run by horrible people uh, where they were trying to uh, sell it as this like bizarro piece of outsider art rather than as just this failed Hollywood sellout project. Mm. And uh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, if you're showing something like that in a museum setting, you get to reconsider it. As for constructing like an ideal double feature, that's hard to do. Well, it's, it depends uh, on what you're in the mood for. I mean, yeah. you actually, uh, uh, when you were constructing the, the mm. double features in that email, uh, you were going off some very specific stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and really just a matter of what you're in the mood of right now. Like, for mm. example, uh, one of my favorite subgenres are serial killer stories where... Uh, the plumbing the depths of human despair, depravity, terror mm. uh, has a real psychological impact on the people investigating the crime. Too often oh, yeah. people are too stoic, I yeah. find. So I love stories about uh, emotional fragility in otherwise heroic situations. Mm. So, for example, a double feature I'd recommend with that would be Michael Mann's Manhunter, 
which was the first adaptation of a Hannibal Lecter story, and it's mm. better than the Red Dragon adaptation that they would do years later. Uh, and I would also uh, add Copycat to that. Oh, there you go. Copycat is a good movie. Copycat's a great movie. Mm. Great serial killer film. Came out about a month after Seven, so nobody noticed. Uh, but I noticed. I watched that one. I, I watched it too. It. It's a great film. Uh, it stars Sigourney Weaver mm. uh, as a serial killer profiler who herself was targeted by a serial killer and is now uh, a recluse and she's agoraphobic and she's afraid to leave mm. her apartment and she's helping a detective mm. played by Holly Hunter hunt down a serial killer who is copycatting every serial killer. Yeah. And it's a really good mm. movie. It's a really oh, good movie. You know movie. what? I just thought of this one. Um mm. I was thinking, like, what's, like, a good film I could pair with a bad film? I was trying to go through my mind. What are some, like, really bad films I've Mm. seen recently? And and Ready Player One came to mind. That's a movie I kind of loathe. Yeah. Uh, And that's a film, like, about pop culture recognition. It's about fandom. It's about how being a fan is sort of a cathartic experience. And that's kind of it. Yeah. What's another film about fandom where it's not so cathartic? And I I would think of Misery. Oh, that works. Yeah, Misery and Ready Player One. You wouldn't think to put those two together, mm-hmm. but they're commenting on a fan's reaction to pop art in different ways. Fan entitlement. The idea that fans own the thing. That's exactly. Really good That's, I like that. Yeah, yeah. I like that too. My first instinct, I thought you were going to go with King of Comedy, but I think Misery makes more sense. Yeah. Um, that, that works. Mm. That's a really, really good one. I like that a lot. Um, let's see. What else? Um Hmm. No, this, <laughs> yeah, I love we, this. It's, we could do this all night. We could, yeah. and this is one of my favorite, like, sort of exercises. So I'm just kind of like in my head, trying to pick out like one interesting movie, and then find something that would pair with it, like, Turn, really Terminator well. Terminator Salvation and Cars. <laughs> they both yeah. take place in a future where humanity is is dead. You're not. And the machines have taken over. You're you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no one's claiming you're wrong. At all. Car- Cars is a decent film. Terminator Salvation isn't. Let, no, it's uh, it's most definitely not. Um, what'd you think of Terminator Salvation? Of all the post-apocalyptic movies. I was, the, I was trying to think of one where, like the machine the machine had taken over. Why not just Terminator? Terminator. Because that two. takes place in the present. I wanted one that takes place in the future. Alright, fine. Um God. It's my imaginary thing I just made up. That's fine. It's mm. fine. Um uh, uh, this is this. These are the noises I make when I'm thinking. Like, if you ever see like an article I've written or everything like that, I make that noise a lot while I'm writing. Just ah, <laughs> ah what's a good psychological thriller? Ah. Oh, I remember uh, uh, back in '99 uh, when The Matrix came out. Everyone mm. said this is so oh, groundbreaking, yeah. and then of course all the the cooler than thou hipster art kids said, "Yeah, but have you seen Existence?" Mm-hmm. And uh, I eventually, same year, yeah. I, I eventually watched them back to back. Make a good double feature. It's a great double feature. Yeah. Rock, rock, rock. Oh, here's a good one. Um, Dark City mm-hmm. and Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> You'll well, notice that, that they both... That'll F you up. Well, right. <laughs> they will totally yeah. F you up, but they're both films about uh, sort of being trapped in a darkness that may or may not be your own making, and mm-hmm. they both feature a really integral scene of Jennifer Connelly at the end of a pier. <laughs> that's true like they're both the exact same shot like mm. it's really weird um okay well anyway, those are some ideas but uh, of course uh God, oh you know, know here here would be an interesting one um because these are two movies that are frequently revisited and talked about a lot mm. uh but one was directly responsible for the other and that's john carpenter's halloween and friday the 13th oh that's good one. Uh, both 
holiday-based horror movies. Now, we tend to think of them in terms of, like, their larger place in the pop culture firmament and the sequels and the franchises that they're, they're connected to and mm. J- Jason versus Michael Myers in this comic book sort of way. But if you watch Friday the 13th after you watch Halloween, you'll actually see how much it was very directly lifted from Halloween. Oh, yeah. Like, all of, of the concepts, yeah. all of the shots. Like, and, and in fact, Sean Cunningham, the producer, has admitted as much. He said, no, we were just trying to recreate something like Halloween. Yeah. And they did. And it's a little odd. And it's, it's this word sort of imitation being the sincerest form of flattery echo of a certain genre. Here are two movies that are actually, inex- I just realized this, they're, mm. they're inextricably linked in my head. Mm. They both came out within a year or two of each other. I, I don't recall exactly, but early 90s. Um, and they have the same theme, even though they're very different movies. Hmm. Uh, Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life and Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Ballroom. Okay. Uh, Defending Your Life, I mentioned it recently on the show. Uh, Defending Your Life is a story about a really normal, typical, unremarkable guy who Hmm. dies and discovers that the afterlife is like a way station in which you are given an opportunity to look over every decision you made in your life and defend yourself and say, I, I lived my life the best I could. And the thing that they, that everything hinges on is whether or not you lived your life in fear. Mm-hmm. Did you let fear dictate your actions or did you try to make the most of your life, even though there were many different reasons to be anxious and afraid? Uh, Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Ballroom is a movie that is also about the dangers of living your life in fear. And it's a multi-generational story about a couple of uh, mm-hmm. ballroom dancers who did live their lives in fear and ended up not making the most of themselves. And the younger generation, which is being encouraged to conform, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately decides not to be afraid and to take their shot, even if it means, you know, potentially everything blowing up in their faces. So one of them is about sort of the grand cosmic reason why you don't live your life in fear. And one of them mm-hmm. is about actively making that decision in the moment while yeah. also doing some badass ballroom dancing. <laughs> so it's, that's a fun double feature. I like that yeah. one. A so lot. Strictly ballroom is really, really good. The first time you watch it, uh, shut up. I love I, that movie I, I, does, every time. It does not hold up. To, no, to I love that movie every doing. single time. I think it's adorable. Yeah. I think it's arguably Baz Luhrmann's best film. Oh, well, th- that I can't argue. Okay. I, I think he just sort of went way off the rails real fast. I think he's made some good other mm. movies, but I think Strictly Ballroom is his masterpiece. Uh, uh, let's move on. Romeo plus Juliet is really, really good if you're 17 in 1997. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Any other time? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, here's a letter from Gabriel. Hello, Gabriel. Hi. Uh, greetings, Bibbs and Whitney. I hope this letter finds you both well. Uh, I'd first like to ask you a brief question before diving into my main discussion points. I listened to your episode on Apple, the Apple Podcasts app, and I've noticed that in your artwork, there's a small white dot on the left edge <laughs> next to the letter A. I was wondering if you already knew about this or if that is somehow intentional. What is that small white dot? That small white dot is an error I only just recently noticed that I'm trying to fix. <laughs> That error, I noticed. I don't know how I missed that for so long, but yeah, for a long time, there's been oh. this little, little, just this, this stray pixel off mm. on the side that somehow mm. I missed for years, mm. and I noticed it myself like a couple of weeks ago, and I've been trying to update it, and I did correct the image, but I don't think it corrects everything in perpetuity backwards. Mm. So I may, I may just be stuck with this one little, little error. But you know what? I think it's the little errors. Mm. That humanize us and and remind us that we're all we're all fallible and um, and we all <laughs> screw up our Photoshop. Uh, you you should you should have said that that was um, it was like like well, like if you zoomed on, in on it really really close, it contains like this really <laughs> profound poem of some kind. <laughs> 
Language bearers, photographers, diary makers, you with your memory are dead, frozen, lost in the present that never stops passing. That sort of thing. Well, now yeah. I wish I'd said that, but yeah. we're stuck now. <laughs> Damn it. That, by the way, was the poem that opens the film Begotten. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought that sounded familiar. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm very fond of that movie. I don't know. Um, but uh, Gabriel goes on. Uh, moving on, I should like to ask you both about a topic that has rather perplexed me for a number of years now. Uh, more often than not, we seem to ta- uh, seem to credit the way a film looks to the director. If I were to describe a movie's visuals as being very Spielberg or being very Ford, for instance, I'm sure you'd understand more or less what I meant by that. Mm-hmm. And this applies to countless other directors, Nolan, Kurosawa, Curtis, whose names are tied to a certain visual style. But what about the cinematographer? Uh, barring some exceptions, cinematographers don't often appear near, uh, to get nearly as much credit in film criticism unless they have reached some sort of stardom, like uh, Tolan, Deakins, or Lubezki. A film's visual style is attributed to the director, I've noticed. For example, we credit Ryan Johnson for making The Last Jedi look so good. I've never heard any mention of the cinematographer Steve Yedlin in any review of the picture. We don't talk about how John Seal accident, uh, excellently captured Miller's vision in Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. We instead applaud Miller for having that vision in the first place is this because it is simply more convenient to credit the director in more cases when writing a critique i've also noticed that it could be a question of achievement that in order to be noticed noticed separately a cinematographer would have to display some sort of craft that clearly could not be solely connected to the director wells might have had the vision for how citizen kane would be shot but toland had to invent many techniques to realize it inyaritu might have had the idea for shooting the reverend revenant with only natural lighting but it was up to emmanuel lebeski to figure out how to do it and accomplish it I understand yep. that most of a dire- the directors I've mentioned would fall under the, quote, auteur category, and so it would be natural for their names to be the only ones discussed in a review, but even then, many cinematographers are well-noted despite having worked on a renowned director's project. Uh, and on the flip side, directors who would, wouldn't necessarily be considered auteurs are still given full credit for the look of their pictures most of the time. Uh, I hope I presented my points clearly enough to ask you the following questions. Why do cinematographers seem so neglected in film criticism, even when discussing how a film looks? And how do you think a cinematographer could get noticed alongside the director instead of being perhaps overlooked? Where does that distinction lie? And uh, how do you decide when to give credit to the director or the cinematographer when writing your reviews? Uh, this may come across as my attempt to rag on directors for taking credit that isn't theirs. That's not my intention. I simply have had this curiosity in my mind for some now and would like to hear your thoughts. Thank you for your time and all you do. Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel, that's a great question. Uh, and you actually covered a, a lot of the reasons why this occurs. Uh, amongst them, um, auteur theory is a popular yeah, theory. Maybe. The idea that ultimately, even though it is a collaborative medium, uh, the director is responsible for either telling people what to do or at the very least approving of their ideas and making sure they end up in the movie. Ergo, the director ultimately ends up with the majority of the credit. This is largely bullshit. However, for mm. critics, it's often a convenient shorthand since yeah. listing the name of literally well, everybody in the credits is yeah, time-consuming yeah. and arguably uh, awkward to read. Yeah, there, there, there is a, 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 a the buck stops here quality to mm. talking about a dar- director as the auteur. And there are many critics who, who rail against auteur theory. Yeah. That there's only one author behind everything because it is such a large, en- enormous collaborative medium. Uh, and yeah, the, the cinematographers, the editors, the sound people, mm-hmm. the actors all bring their own, uh, creative decisions into the entire filmmaking process. Yeah. And they're often responsible for various elements that just happen to click well together. And as since the director is the one overseeing it all, 
credit is sort of channeled in their direction. Yeah, especially if they're also writer-directors. That also yeah, encourages yeah. people to look at them in that light. Some directors are their own cinematographers. Robert Rodriguez shoots a lot of his own mm. movies, for example, edits, and edits some of them as well. And so that auteur theory seems to apply mm. more to some people than others. Um, I don't think it's an all-or-nothing proposition. But regardless... Uh, something that I have been making a concerted effort to do, and I should do a better job on the podcast. In my writing, I've been making more of a concerted effort, but I've barely written any reviews in the last year just because mm. the, the industry the dried up. The opportunities aren't yeah. there for us. But uh, I've been making a more concerted effort to single out and name uh, the various people responsible for individual achievements mm. in a film when I highlight those achievements. Yeah. So if I, I compliment the costume design, I need to make sure I mention the costume mm. designer. Same thing with the cinematography or the editing. They deserve mm. the credit. The director arguably deserves, depending on the situation, credit for the film as a whole. Uh, arguably, some might say that, and it's still very, very easy to say Steven Spielberg's blankety blue, like mm. Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, whatever, regardless of who else worked on it. Uh, but we as film critics should do better about that because I think a lot of the time there is a lack of a perceived, sorry, a perceived lack of interest mm. amongst our readers our listeners or our audience, uh, in the tech stuff. And you'll notice this when like people interview directors, mm. very rarely in the mainstream publications, are they going into the nuts and bolts of the cinematography? They or, just want to know what the director's storytelling decisions or, were. They're not talking about. You know, or, or get into the lighting. Uh, or get into anything other than the director or the screenwriter. Yeah. Or um, the actors. Or, or the actors. Yeah. Uh, one of the best interviews I've, I feel I got to have was with uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. Uh, so jealous we were doing th that. That was a great interview. Yeah. And I got to talk about editing. That was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you and I got to talk to Colleen Atwood and we oh, talked about costumes. That was a great podcast. Yeah. That was the first podcast she ever did. Yeah. She, our, yeah, our podcast was the first uh, yeah. Colleen Atwood I don't even know if she did. ever did anymore, but yeah. like, yeah, that was cool. And uh, I, I, I was, uh, she said she was working in like, she does CGI costumes sometimes mm -hmm. as well. She gets to like dress maquettes and then they scan them and put them into a computer for an animated thing. It's like, well, if, if that's true, then why do the, why do the costumes have to be plausible? <laughs> it's like, have something where things are just floating through the air. Why not? It's a fair question. Um, yeah. So yeah, th there's a lot of interesting decisions being made by incredibly talented people that, uh, in terms of like Twitter film criticism, aren't being discussed a lot. Yeah, uh, people tend to be interested uh, because in... because of auteur theory, yeah. because of the the just the way uh, the language of film criticism is structured. And also, again, yeah. again, the marketing of film mm. criticism is what are most people talking about? They're yeah. talking well, about but... which characters end up in this franchise mm. movie or whatever like that. A lot of the time, yeah, but. Uh, because Twitter is brief, it's based on brevity, uh, shorthand needs to be relied on more and more and more. And if all we have is the shorthand, we start to notice more and more how how much is being left out. Yeah. Uh, when you read like a full review, I've noticed a lot of critics are, like you are making a concerted effort to credit costume designers mm -hmm. and cinematographers and sound mixers. And, uh, like, actually getting their names into the yeah. reviews. Uh, in the age of the internet, we can look up those names now. Yeah. It's not just academic any longer. So. And you gotta remember, like, a lot of people, when you even when I do write a review like mm. that, and even if I do throw out, you know, compliment, you know, Emmanuel mm. Lubezki or, or Robert Steele or whatever, mm. um, a lot of people reading it are just gonna glaze, their eyes are gonna glaze over at that part because they don't recognize that name. Mm, and they're just going to move on. But, but it's, it's important. important no, it's important that you put the name in their brain. Well, that's my point. That's I feel like that's the idea is that a lot of people aren't super interested, but they're not super interested because we're not talking about it. Mm. And this is where sometimes 
entertainment and entertainment journalism can eat its own tail mm. where it's like, well, we talk about these movies or we only talk about these aspects of the production because this is what our audience knows about. And this is what our audience cares about. And at that point I'm like, that may be so, but once they're here listening to you, it's also our responsibility to make sure they know about that stuff so that they can be better informed, better educated and see more interesting films, understand more interesting parts of the process and get interested in all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we have responsibility and the older I get, the longer I'm in this industry, the more I realize that being a film critic is as much about being an educator as it is anything else right now. Oh, always. Yeah. Um, because especially considering the, and again, you know, the longer you're around, the more often you're going to run into people who are just getting interested in movies or mm -hmm. even just not as invested in it and haven't seen as many movies or aren't familiar with as much of the filmmaking process. And the opportunity to illuminate is maybe the most exciting of all. Yeah. So I think we all need to do a better job of that. I thank you because it's something that even though it's something that we occasionally address like inside baseball talk, it doesn't get discussed enough in the open. Yeah. We need to do better and, uh, about that. And I will continue to try to do better. And I'll try to do better about that in the podcast uh, too. And uh, yeah. to cite uh, cinematography in particular, uh, what just watch visions of light. Uh, yeah. there, there's a documentary film. It's, 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 I old, hope that's it's, available. it's, it's like, like 18 years old at this point but oh, um, more than that it's yeah. I, I think i don't even know if it, I mean, it came out like in the mid 90s it yeah it, was, it wouldn't even be like about the digital revolution but the principles of the same. yeah uh but there there was a really fantastic documentary film called visions of light which if is, it's uh, available anywhere which was about the art of cinematography of in uh, throughout the history of cinema from its inception up until when that film was made oh my fucking and god that is not streaming anywhere Visions of Light isn't anywhere. I just it's checked it on like Just Watch. It it's anything. not. It's not. Oh, no, God. I'm looking on. I'm looking on Just Watch. It is not on there. Yeah. That is a go, fucking crime. That is go, a. Yeah, that is a indispensable. To, open, that's like finding it, out yeah. the dictionary went out of print. Like yeah. that's what that. That's what that. That is v bullshit. Visions of Light is not just a good film. It's actually an incredibly educational one, and will let you uh, start to observe things about I mean, the filmmaking process that we, you wouldn't see uh, um, otherwise. I think they should make a sequel about yeah, the digital revolution. Um, apparently, it is actually pretty easy to find in other mm -hmm. ways. So I okay. guess uh, search YouTube and might be able to find. Mm -hmm. Clips or maybe even the whole thing. Who can yeah. say? But uh, please, that's a great documentary and it's mm. worth seeing. Um, here's a letter from JP. Hello, JP. Hi, JP. Um, dear supposed Star Trek fans. Oh, snap. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. We are about to get taken to task and I uh, love it. We're going to be thrown down. Uh, on your episode of the, uh, Briscoe County, the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. episode of Cancel Too Soon, you stated there was no Western episode of Star Trek Enterprise. How could you possibly forget the season three episode North Star where the NX-01 turns up and, okay, I have no memory what happens. But... <laughs> Because it was an, an utterly forgettable episode, but it was definitely a Western, signed JP. Uh, yes, I've been taken to task for this from several people. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky that, like, Scott Mance didn't school me or anything. Oh, he but, would, uh, you would never have heard the end of it. No, He'd no, no. be, like, sending you email after email after email. Also, I think he's not a big Enterprise fan. He's more of the oh, original yes. series, but... Enterprise is, not, Enterprise is very few people's favorite Star Trek series. I do find it, it odd that... Uh, one of the J.J. Abrams movies made a lot of heavy references to Enterprise. Yeah. like Well, it, because the Enterprise was like the one... Okay, so when J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek mm -hmm. in 2009, 
the idea was That's everything odd. was the same until this major incident with Kirk's father, hmm. which means that everything in Enterprise actually happened. It's the only part of the J.J. Abrams verse of the original canon that is untouched. Uh-huh. So referencing that made sense, but it's still not the Enterprise. It's still not the show that everyone cared about. But if you listened to our Briscoe County Jr. episode, we talked about how um, a lot of shows had a Western episode, even Star Trek. Hmm. Star Trek had a lot of Western episodes. <laughs> and largely because like in the 60s when they did were doing Star Trek, Westerns were a more popular genre on TV than sci-fi. Hmm. Uh, so there so, were a lot of Western sets that they could just shoot in. So they did at least one proper Western episode and a couple of other Western-themed episodes. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and then there were Western episodes of a lot of the other Star Treks. Uh, and uh, yeah, we we couldn't think of one from Enterprise, and I I throw all the blame on Whitney because <laughs> I've seen that episode. I've only seen I've like five episode. episodes of Enterprise, right. and then I gave up, and then so I I trusted Whitney. <laughs> I should have right. looked so, it up. So uh, starting with season three of Enterprise, they they introduced this new uh, this new wrinkle. They kind of changed the premise of the show a little bit. A mysterious. Uh, death uh like doomsday device appeared above earth just sort of randomly and destroyed the state of florida it's gone yeah and uh as such the enterprise was now tasked with finding who did it that was like mm-hmm. the quest of the whole season and it turns out there was a whole bunch of bug aliens on Klindathu. uh there were bug aliens uh but the it, it turns out it was the the species responsible was the zindi which they oh, yeah. made reference to the zindi wars in star trek beyond mm-hmm and the Zindi is made up of several different species, so they were different to to, uh, to track down. But it was like this big complicated process, and there were new like army type soldiers on the ship. And uh, Captain Archer got like really cruel about trying mm. to, to track these people down to get revenge. And one of the cast members had uh, like a relative in Florida when it was blown up. It was it was all a big nine eleven metaphor. Mm. Uh, and in one of those episodes in the third season, while they're searching for the Zindi, they find a Western planet. And and like humans from the old West were kidnapped and put there and they just sort of recreated their town and nothing had changed in the last several hundred years. That was the premise of the episode. Yeah. I also don't remember what happened in it. I've only seen it once. It's been a little while. I have it on DVD. I'll watch it again. Uh, The Zindi were originally introduced in the animated series, weren't they? Uh, The word Zindi was, but it's a different species. Mm, I don't know. It depends on how canonical you want the animated series to be. It's been Mm -hmm. argued that it's semi-canonical well, i think i think they knew what they were doing basically and of course the zindi uh uh actually have a connection to a book series mm. that isn't actually star trek canon but the author of the books was involved in like the creation of that like animated episode when we get to the animate by the way we're all talking uh, right now about stuff we'll get to on our star trek podcast all our yesterdays mm-hmm. which is a patreon exclusive and we're reviewing every single episode of star trek in production order we are very close to being done with the original series. And then we're jumping right into the animated series, which I cannot wait for. I love the animated series. <laughs> uh, so we'll be talking about the the first quasi-appearance of the Zindi uh, mm. this year, certainly, yeah. I'm sure. So uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, okay. Um, here's a letter from Seth. Hello, Seth. Hi, Seth. Uh, dear Bibs and Rockmeister, Rockmeister McLovin McCool. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, since the film... Is that a hyphen? Uh, <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> of, of the Bridgeport McLovin McCools. Uh, 
Since the film Happiest Season came out, it seems that almost everyone I know who saw the movie was upset that Kristen Stewart's character, Abby, does not end up with Aubrey Plaza's character, Riley. Mm. Uh, sorry for the spoiler, but it's a romantic comedy, so it's more about the journey. And it's been out for a while. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll allow it. So that got me thinking about movies, especially romantic comedies, that may have gotten it wrong. So I pose to you, what is a romantic film mm. in the triad scenario where you mm. felt that the choice was wrong, whether it worked for the film or it didn't? Uh, for me, uh, the film would be Sweet Home Alabama. I haven't mm. seen Sweet Home Alabama. I haven't seen that one either. Uh, completely got it wrong. Why Reese Witherspoon did not choose the Patrick Dempsey character always annoyed me. He seems like a really nice guy who's into her. He's sexy as F. <laughs> Lives in the same city she lived in and took her to Tiffany's for her engagement ring and said to pick one. Oh, wait, hold on. Uh, lived in the same city. You, Patrick Dempsey. okay? Uh, she's... Uh, she... He seems like he said he lived in the same city, he took her to Tiffany's for the engagement and said to pick one. That annoys me to this day. Uh, so I'm curious to hear what your answers are. Also, do you think the protagonist would have been better off single or ended up with both of them in a throupled <laughs> bliss? Uh, thanks to for all you guys do, bringing cinematic critical joy to the masses. I look forward to all your recommendations for 2021. Thank you, Seth. Uh, regarding Happiest Season, uh, which I talked about a little bit about uh, on the most recent episode of Critically Acclaimed, when we talk about our best of the year, it made my runners up. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is a movie that starts out as a rom-com and actually ends up as a very pointed uh, dark comedy comedy about uh, growing up in a psychologically abusive household and mm. someone who thinks they're in a beautiful romantic comedy situation realizing that the person they're with is actually extremely damaged mm. um I, I love it actually i think it's really really great and a lot of people want because mackenzie davis's character when she goes home falls into mm. such uh maladaptive behaviors mm. uh that she really threatens her whole relationship uh, with Kristen Stewart, a lot of people wanted Kristen Stewart to end up with Aubrey Plaza's character, even though the only thing they... I, I, I get it. She's wonderful. She's great. But the well, only the, thing the they two, have in common the two, is... The, is two performer, yeah. the, the two performers have good chemistry. They have great chemistry, yeah. and no denying it. But it's a... They just met. Hmm. That's the thing. Like, you, throwing away their relationship mm-hmm. for someone who they just met is satisfying, I think, to the audience, but I don't think it's satisfying to the characters, well, really. Also, I, it may help that, uh, and I've heard some some critics point this out, uh, that Mackenzie Davis is herself straight, and Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza are bisexual women, so maybe mm-hmm. there was just a, a, a lot more ease with one another on screen, and that's why people wanted to see those two together, uh, just because of what we know about them off screen. That can be debated. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, I think it is, I don't think any bad decision was made. I think it turned out very well. Was it a little too neat and tidy? Sure. Eh, yeah, uh, I'm it's, not it's, it's a romantic comedy. Uh, did Mackenzie Davis treat, uh, Kristen Stewart very badly? Yes. Yeah. But that's the point of the movie. And that's how, uh, that's what the closet would did to her. And I think that's actually an important statement that can be made. Um, so I, I don't have that issue. I know a lot of people complain, oh, yeah. Mackenzie Davis treated her so badly. Yeah, but that's the point. She that's was, the part of the movie. It's it's yeah, she she almost lost her relationship over it. And, but then they were yeah. able to patch it up again. I think yeah. I think the film handles it just fine. I agree. Uh, uh, but regarding love mm-hmm. triangles where you're actually upset with who ends up with who, uh, th- a lot of this is a matter of personal taste, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I think some movies justify it uh, better than others. For whatever reason, the first one that came to my mind was This Means War. Oh, where, um, is it, is it Reese Witherspoon? Yeah. Is torn between Chris Pine and Tom Hardy. What a poor soul. Yeah. Oh, you, oh, what a tragedy. <laughs> Here's the deal. They're both CIA agents. They're best, they're best friends. Mm. And they both use their CIA skills to sort of sabotage each other. 
Um, in that sort of, in real life, all of this would be monstrous, but we're going to play it off for last because it's a rom-com kind of way. Um, I haven't seen that since it came out, but here's what it boiled down to. Uh, if memory serves, Chris Pine refers to Lady on a Train as, uh, no, sorry, The Lady Vanishes mm. as Lesser Hitchcock. So fuck that guy. <laughs> fuck that guy. They have a meet cute in a video store, and he says some of the stupidest shit ever said about Alfred Hitchcock. You end up with Tom Hardy. You end up with Tom Hardy, damn it. See, in a situation like that, I'm like, just be a thruple. Uh, yeah. Greg Araki made a film called Splendor, where uh, Kathleen Robertson found herself in this sort of funny romantic comedy situation. Well, do I go with this guy who's, like, really nice, and he's kind of rich, and he's incredibly good-looking, and he d- does me favors, and he buys me gifts, and he's just nice and polite, and we have a good rapport? Or do I go with this guy where we don't really talk a lot, but he's dynamite in bed, and he's always paying attention to me sexually? And because it's Greg Araki, they do end up as a thruple. Mm -hmm. She ends up dating both of them. And of course, the joke is, even though she's dating two guys, now she just has like two slug-a-bed boyfriends that she has to to sort of shoulder Mm -hmm. around. Uh, There's there's not that many Mm rom-coms that are willing to go there. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people find that, again, this is a very... um, in some respects, Hollywood is very conservative in its relationship values. Gee, you think? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I know some people are just like, ah, oh, Hollywood, they're shoving all these liberal ideas down their throat. No, everything is very, it's very much pro-marriage, very monogamous. Uh, it's it's hard to get queer romances off the ground in the Hollywood system. It's getting a little better, but it's nowhere near yeah. where it needs to be. And I love the, uh, the term passive progressive. Yeah. Uh, it's been used to describe the new Zin, uh, uh, Disney films. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I almost call them Disney films. I, I, thought, I thought I heard you say that. <laughs> the Walt Zindy Corporation. Yeah. Oh, finally, we're going to renew my subscription to Zindy Plus. Um, <laughs> I'm there. Don't call it Paramount Plus. Call it Zindy Plus. But there are a few films that have done it. Uh, offhand, one actually relatively recent film in the grand scheme of things, not like it just came out, uh, is the Barry Levinson film Bandits. Oh, I, I never saw Bandits, Band- but yeah, it, yeah was, it was Love Triangle, and they all end up kind of together. Uh, Bruce Willis is like this cool uh, bank robber. Billy Bob Thornton is this incredibly neurotic bank robber, and uh, they end up uh, taking a hostage in the form of Kate Blanchett, who is immediately all about this hostage thing. She hated her life, and she, this is all like an adventure to her. And over the course of the film, she ends up, they end up having to split up a couple of times. And then she ends up spending a lot of time with Bruce Willis since she falls in love with him. Then they, she ends up spending a lot of time with Billy Bob Thornton and she falls in love with him. And then the two guys get really jealous. And finally, she's just like, who gives a shit? Let's just all be in a relationship. And that's how it ends. Yeah. And it's quite satisfying, actually. <laughs> it's a very refreshing ending. And like, nobody talks about how, I think it's because nobody remembers that movie. It was a modest hit when it came out. But well, like, the, yeah, we- it, we we recently God. watched uh, Paint Your Wagon, which does something kind of similar. Oh, yeah, yeah, have two husbands yeah. at the same time. I almost forgot about that. Um, as for romantic comedies where they choose the wrong person, that's an easy one for me because uh, it comes from a film I don't like, and it's Scott Pilgrim versus the World, mm. where uh, the whole uh, the premise is uh, he's dating uh, Scott Pilgrim. The title character is dating a. a younger girl is a little bit naive uh-huh well and, she's a teenager she, she's way too she, young yeah, for she, him she's, she's still t- in high school i think yeah he's in his mid-20s she's still in high school so they're, they're dating they shouldn't be they shouldn't have together and, anyway and she's been so charmed by him because he plays in a band and she thinks he's yeah. really cool that movie's all about how cool is sort of like the only currency that exists and uh he ends up uh becoming completely smitten with uh, he's canadian with an american woman uh played by uh, uh Mar- 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 winstead yeah 
And she's even cooler because she's got pink hair and skates around and delivers things by hand. Uh, and the movie is about how he has to prove how cool a guy he is in order to win over the Mary Elizabeth Winstead character. I don't think and that's, that's the, actually a correct... Okay, fine. I'll, that, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. I think that's 100% accurate I, I description of that movie. I think it's a somewhat uh, misinterpretation and, and of the he, theme of the film. And he okay. becomes very uh, insecure about himself because she has... Uh, dated more people than he has, I guess. And uh, now he has to feel like he has to match up to all of her ex-boyfriends and one ex-girlfriend. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, film the idea pl- is, the the idea film plays is it every as time thing. you date someone, you have to prove you're better than everyone else they ever dated. Exactly. That's, the, and, that's and, the theme. And the, uh, the film visualizes this by having it be like video game fights yeah. rather than any kind of like emotional confrontation. At the end of that movie, he ends up fighting an ex and winning Ramona Flowers' hand and she falls in love with him. And uh, the the knives, the young the girl he left behind, is just sort of left behind. Yeah, it's like shouldn't he have learned some sort of lesson that pursuing this this uh, other woman and living in this world of like super coolness and having cool this sort of shallow uh, bits of fashion being the only way you can define yourself shouldn't he have learned at some point that that's not genuine. And that maybe he should be a little bit more mature about the way he approaches the other people that he dates and go back to knives and apologize and say, let's make it work. I'm sorry I was distracted mm. by this artificial world that Ramona was dragging me into. Yeah. The, he didn't do any of that. The more, uh, the, the the more I, is... I was a fan of the graphic novels. I haven't mm. revisited them in a while. Mm. Uh, and as much as there's a lot in that movie that I like, mm. uh, I think I actually think it's a very poor adaptation. Because I think you're, I think you're right. I think it does fumble a lot of the emotional beats, some of which are in the book. Scott mm. does apologize to Knives okay. in the book. Um, they don't end up together uh, because the book ta- the books take place over a much longer period of time, and his relationship with Ramona isn't just getting started. It's actually something worth fighting for at the mm. end. But I do I think in the books he actually achieves more maturity and realizes that the ultimate message of the story is he's an asshole, mm. um, and Ramona finds this out as well. And I think the books are better. But I'm not going to fight you on this. I do think that he shouldn't end up with knives either because she's way too young for him. Uh, I know a lot of people will say she, he should end up with knives, well, and I'm like, she, you know, no, he should he should have ended up alone. Actually, that's my point. I think that's what he should have done. He should have realized I'm not mature enough for any kind of meaningful relationship right now. I need to spend more time I need, alone. I need to work on myself. The, the movie takes a... place over such a short <clears throat> period of time that that's the only lesson he could have learned that would have been satisfying because mm-hmm. neither of those relationships are healthy by the end of that movie. Yeah, and uh, there, there's even a joke at the end that uh, he's finally in, in these video game fights has beaten the final ex boyfriend in, in a fight. Yeah. Uh, but there's one final boss, and it, he has to fight the evil version of himself. And there's like the shadowy version of, of Scott Pilgrim appears before him. And then uh, the director played it off as like a joke. Yeah. It's like, uh, okay, we're going to fight, and they gear up, and then there's just this sort of hard edit, and they leave together. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I talked to my evil self. It's kind of a cool guy. And mm. that should have been the whole point of the movie, rather than played mm. off as a gag. Yeah. Where, well, one could where, also... the, where the, the evil guy is actually kind of the cool guy, so what does that make him? Exactly. Yeah. That would have been... I think there's... that's. <laughs> It's been a while since I've read it. If memory serves, that scene's a little bit more complicated in the book. But uh, I'm sure it is. No, no, I'm if, just, I'm just. If you're gonna have I'm, not, movie, defending, put it in the I'm movie. not defending the movie. I'm All not right. defending the movie. I honestly think the further I get from that movie, the more I'm disappointed with it in everything except its style and humor. 
Okay. I think the humor is very, very strong. I oh, it's love, really funny. That's I love the way that Edgar Wright visualized a world in which everyone filters all of their experiences through a very particular kind of popular culture. Yeah. I think that is incredible. I think visually that movie is ahead of its time in the way it portrays mm-hmm. people uh, of a certain generation living in a world ruled by video games, comic books, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, relationship politics-wise, that movie does kind of stink. And I've I've soured on it, honestly. Like I still there's a lot of respect about it, but I don't think it's a great movie and mm. I'm I'm disappointed in it. Um and uh And don't yeah. and don't get me started on that film's view of sexuality. It's oh yeah. Just, oh yeah. Yeah. There's it there's a lot that it doesn't work about it. But let's move on. All right. Here's a letter from Ken. Hello, Ken. Hi Ken. Uh, Hail fair William of Bibbs and Rockmeister of McCool. <laughs> Welcome, Knave. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to such vaunted yes. praise. Uh, first off, congratulations on us all surviving 2020. Thank you. Ugh. We collapsed over the finish line. Um, yeah. It comes to my attention that as of January 1st, 2021, a piece of classic American literature has fallen into the public domain, mm-hmm. that being F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. Yep. So we can just read that if we want <laughs> to. Publish it if you want. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to clear it with anybody's estate. We'll just yeah. read that mother. Yeah, you can adapt uh, it into a movie if you want. You don't mm-hmm. have to pay nobody. Yeah, it's great. Also, with the overindulgent Baz Luhrmann version nearing that 10-year anniversary. Oh, gosh, it's that old already, yeah. isn't it? Uh, I hate that movie. Uh, I, I, I like it more than you, but it's not great. I honestly think it's high time we actually get a good adaptation of a book that most people have read in high school. There's a small enclave of people wanting Kermit and the gang to take on the classic. Oh, being, being be weird. Me being one of those people, probably because the notion of seeing Kermit as Gatsby, obviously, face down in a swimming pool is a pretty funny visual. And the fact that it's... the. Uh, that morbid of a laugh is not lost on me. So apart from the obvious casting of Kermit and Ms. Piggy, who do you see in the roles? Thank you for all the wonderful podcasts. They get me through my job loading UPS trucks in the early morning hours. Ken. Wow. That is the Muppet Gatsby is a really dark idea. Oh my God. Oh, I love it though. I, I need to look up some of the character names. I'm looking up the right, Gatsby yeah. right now. Uh, there's, there's Gatsby and Daisy and uh, yeah, everybody that, says, here's, yeah. here's my theory. I think, uh, I think Kermit should be the narrator. Oh no uh, no 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 no! And no, I don't and and Gatsby should be played by the human actor. You you get a okay, hu- you I get a human get Gatsby and all the the rest of the cast are, so that's, are Muppets. Okay, it's like, so it's there's like two approaches. You know, there's two uh, approaches. Long John Silver in the Muppet, yeah. Muppet Treasure Island was a human actor. Yeah. Uh, Scrooge in Christmas so, Carol was a so, human actor. So the showy role hmm. goes to the human actor, right? See, I was thinking like a, that the that the uh, that the audience stand-in character okay. should go to the to the human character and yeah. let the Muppets take the stage. But I think you're right, and I think that might take the sting off a little. Um, but I got to be honest this whole this whole concept. While I applaud your ingenuity and creativity, this whole concept is breaking my brain. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But okay, so let's so, okay. So we're gonna have so Gatsby. Nick, Nick, Nick is the narrator. Gatsby uh, needs to be played by someone who is pretty young, thirties, mm. um, and uh, obviously incredibly dapper and charming on the outside, but very tortured on the inside. Okay. Uh, also, you want a star. You want to have yeah. someone you can like wrap the movie around and like sell it on. Like, mm-hmm. oh my god, I can't believe they're doing a movie mm-hmm. with the Muppets. Timothy Chalamet. Do you think he has enough of a sense he's, of humor? Or is he he's too, too young. Too broody. Just too young. He's still too young. He, yeah. he reads young, even if he's it's not. True. Like he just he'd reads be good so, Nick. He'd be great <laughs> Nick. I, 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 yeah, actually, I'd be fine with it. But no, he 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 reads uh, way right. too young. Um, Michael B. Jordan. 
as Gatsby? Yeah, it would give it a different uh, sort of interpretation with the... Interesting, the, all right. Yeah, I think he'd play the role really great. Yeah. Well, uh, he's a very good actor. He could definitely play the role, but yeah. Yeah, it would be... Uh, it would, it would, people, people would go, hmm, interesting. Mm. That, would, <laughs> that would change a lot of themes, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. Robert Pattinson. Oh, well, yeah, kind of. And he'd be obviously. good. And he'd be good. And, and he has That's a good sense thing. of humor. Yeah. yeah. Our, Robert Pattinson would be a really good Gatsby. Robert Pattinson would also be a really good Gatsby. Okay, so we got Robert Pattinson. We'll stick with Robert Pattinson. Mm. People, will, people will pay to see Robert Pattinson. But, and but, people and, like him. But, if, but, but, uh, if Michael B. Jordan has a really good agent, that doesn't matter. They've taken, they want to fight that one out amongst mm. themselves. They can have either one. Um, okay, so we've got... We've got Daisy and Tom. Mm-hmm. Daisy, who's in love with Gatsby, and Tom is her like yeah. no good Nick husband. Daisy's obviously Miss Piggy. Okay, you got to have Daisy as Miss Piggy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick has got to be Gonzo and Rizzo. Okay, I was, I was thinking I was thinking like Walter. No, Gonzo and Rizzo. There, right. there, there are they. That's the same role they played in uh, Treasure Island and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah, they have to be our de facto mm-hmm. narrator right. people who are in every scene. Boom. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So now, who, pl- who plays Tom? Jesus Christ. <laughs> who plays... Tom, Tom, who's... Married, married, to, Daisy, married to Daisy, is abusive, and, is abusive and, and, is, and is having an affair with Myrtle. The monster. He's a monster. He's a monster. I I almost think you get another human actor. You get, like, Michael too, Fossbender or someone he dark, you know? Couldn't like, have, like, uh, like Sweetums or... or, or <laughs> <laughs> or, or, uncle, or, or, or Uncle Sweetums Deadly. Uncle so <laughs> Uncle Deadly. No, you can't have Uncle yeah. Deadly. Um, if it has Daisy, be... could you please just shut up? You could see him like kind I of can, kind of berating. I could see him in yeah. like if you did like okay, Uncle like, Deadly you, you, would be perfect. Clearly, if you did you a Muppet, have, like the physical abuse in a Muppet you, movie. No, but... God no. But like if you did the Muppet like sense and sensibility, oh. you put Uncle Deadly in there. It's like um, the, the I forget who, who the character's name, but Hugh Laurie played them in the movie. Like this really oh, disapproving yeah, yeah. husband. Like he'd be good in Muppet Jane Austen. That would be perfect for <laughs> Uncle Deadly. Uncle Deadly, no, you need someone like dapper and cool. Oh. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I need to remember the name of this Muppet. Hang on, hang on. Oh, well, just describe the Muppet because I, uh, I, I know my Muppet. He's, okay, he's the uh, head uh, Captain Link Hogthrob from Pigs in Space. Oh, there you go. He'd be a good Tom. Yeah. It's kind of a thinker. A lot of people are going to go, who's Link Hogthrob? And be like, it'll work. Trust me. Well, does that mean Myrtle is is uh, Spamela Hamderson? Well, Spamela, wasn't Spamela just Miss Piggy? No, no, no. She, she was a different pig character. Really? I only remember Hogthrob, Dr. Julius Strangepork, and then Miss Piggy. No, look look up, look up Spamela Hamderson because she's uh, she was... Um, I think she was Pamela in- Hamderson. She was introduced about the same time as like Cliff and Pepe the. Pond. Oh, she was one of the later ones. Yeah. Okay. 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 All right. Then I don't know her. That's that's there all there is to that. Okay. Yeah, Cl- fine. Cl- Cliff Catfish and Pepe the Prawn and Spamela Hamderson. No, no, no. Around no. the you, same time. No, you get. Um... Oh, who was the who was uh, the Kermit's girlfriend in the Muppets sitcom that was based on The Office? Oh, she was um, another pig. Yeah. Hold on. We're gonna oh we're gonna same, do this. I think it was the same character actually. No, it wasn't because I'm looking at her now. She's pig, different. Pig characters in the Muppets. Yeah, the Muppets pig characters. The thing is, if if we're 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 not finding any good spots for some of like the old standbys. Well, that's the problem with Great Gatsby. It's actually not an ensemble film. Yeah, 
that's the danger of doing Great Gatsby mm. is that it's actually a very intimate film. It's mm. actually only about like five key characters. Mm. So you're not going to have that excuse. To, like You'll have the Muppets at the big parties, obviously. And at that point, you're probably going to end up creating like a whole bunch of like side subplots and like you know maybe throw in some references to some other literature of the teens and 20s that was like (laughs) what are what are some other roaring 20s stories we Mm. can tell with pepe the prawn or (laughs) new zealand or whoever (laughs) like but but i do say this it is exciting that things are actually going to public domain now because they're supposed to when art gets old enough, it's, it's just supposed to become part of like the cultural sort of framework of everything, can, and it's not yeah, just about money anymore. You can blame Disney for that. Oh, they've I been, do. They've been changing all of these copyright, like they've been petitioning really hard, yeah. so they can keep Mickey. Like yeah. that's kind of it. They just want to keep Mickey as their masthead, and uh, Mickey is old enough to be part of the public domain now, mm-hmm. and just is not yet. They should change his name to Mickey Masthead. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Um, all right, let's uh, do but, one more. But yeah, a Great Gatsby, fun idea. I still yeah. think the the most logical choice from Muppet Story is uh, is Midsummer Night's Dream because you got a bunch of characters. Yeah. There's a lot of magic in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use Shakespeare language. There's plenty of jokes you can write into. The, it's already a comedy. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, for me, the most obvious one for me yeah. is Muppet Dracula. Yeah. They've never yeah. done a Muppet like Halloween type movie. Uh, and I think that that that's long since time. It's a great role for a human actor. My dream uh-huh. is for Dracula to be played by Tom Hardy. And he's just like, <laughs> and he's, he's there just trying to seduce Miss Piggy and bite her neck. That's the greatest scene in film history is Tom Hardy with like the Dracula medal and the cape. And he's like trying to bite Miss Piggy. It's the funniest thing I've ever thought of. And you, it would be the best. That. You got Gonzo as Renfield. Mm. You got Kermit, obviously, as Keanu Reeves. You got uh, <laughs> Jonathan Harker as the character's name. <laughs> yeah, but in my head, he's doing Keanu Reeves. Pe- uh, Pepe the Prawn is is uh, Dracula's undead brides. Uh, no, that's Camilla and the chickens. Oh, sure. <laughs> You can see Tom Hardy. Well, I would think Oscar Isaac would be a good Muppet He'd also Dracula. be good. I would love to see that. That'd be awesome. I can see them both yelling at Muppet chickens. Go, my brides, go! <laughs> That'd be hilarious. That, that would be really, really great. Gonna, I'd be fine with that. I mean, like, we can't get Tom Hardy. We can only get Oscar Isaac. I'm like, great! <laughs> These are the problems you want to have. It's a... Ah, anyway, moving on. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, here is a top ten list. Oh. This one comes from RJ. So this is for this year. For this year. Yeah, we, just did our, are, yeah. we just did our top 10 lists mm-hmm. uh, uh, for 2020, and we are absolutely interested mm-hmm. in everyone else's top 10 lists. Uh, if you want to send them in, we'll talk about the films. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. it'll introduce us to some stuff we missed. Uh, maybe we'll just have a totally different take on something. Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear them. All right. Uh, RJ says, hello, Bibbs, and uh, Rockmeister McCool, but it's spelled Richard Jewell. Hello. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Loved your best of the year lists. Always incredibly interesting to hear the differences in your lists. This year was particularly great. I thought I'd write in with my own uh, top of the year and see what you guys think. Before I start, I want to clarify I live in the UK and thus makes my list based on UK release dates. A lot of people find this annoying for some reason, as if American release dates are the only official ones. Yeah, well, I mean, we're Americans. We, we that's kind of a lot of we think the Oscars have trained a lot of Americans to think of Oscars eligibility as the only release date that matters. Mm. In actuality, you go overseas and stuff; it gets kind of arbitrary yeah. at that point. I'm not gonna. Here's the deal: as an American critic, 
I've decided to just follow that guideline, mm. but I don't care if anyone else doesn't no, follow it. Who cares? It's just a recommendation of movies. Di- different You're country, recommending movies. Yeah. That's great. Uh, for example, Paddington 2 came out in the UK in 2017, but I saw it on a lot of 2018 lists coming out of America. There you go. In the past, I did I did wait to see films, but then you find yourself waiting until, like, March to finally see everything before you make your list, and it's exhausting. Also, it really doesn't matter that much. That's also <laughs> Just true. Just thought I'd preface this in case you guys were reading it and saying, wait, that was a twenty on my 2019 list. Uh, number 10, Soul. I wrote an email uh, to you guys about this, detailing why it meant so much to me, and so for now I'll just say it inspired thought-provoking peace and offered me the comfort I sorely needed. Uh, Number nine, Happiest Season. Hey! Uh, Telling me there's a lesbian Christmas rom-com starring Kristen Stewart is like walking up to a dog and saying, walkies, belly rubs. (laughs) And it did not disappoint. I understand Whitney's grievances regarding the film's happy ending and whether or not it's earned, but given how many times I, I had to watch one half of a gay couple die, leave, or have their life ruined forever. I can't bring myself to have a problem with that. It was hilarious and endearing and brought me a pure elation. Uh, number eight, Birds of Prey and the Yay! fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn based on the novel Pushed by Sapphire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, oh, or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bomb. Uh, jokes aside, I'm Team Bibbs when it comes to this movie. What an invigorating burst of vibrancy and excitement. Uh, even if the year had gone as planned, I still believe that Birds of Prey would have been the strongest movie of the year. Between this and Shazam, I thought DC might finally be hitting a stride. Before I saw the reactions to Wonder Woman 1984, it's the best DCEU has to offer so far with an outstanding villain performance by Ewan McGregor. I mean, uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah. Uh, Emma. I have never read a Jane Austen novel, nor would I describe this type of film to be my taste, though it's not something I'm closed-minded to. Uh, first of all, read more Jane Austen. Like she's, wonderful. she's yeah, wonderful. Read Pride and Prejudice. It reads like a dream. From line yeah. one onward, mm. not all of her stuff is equally as accessible, I think, today, but Pride and Prejudice mm. is still... It's, I think it's my favorite yeah, novel. Yeah, it's read, so great. Read, read Jane, Jane Austen and Dickens back-to-back. Alternate between the two. Yeah. And, uh, I, I know Dickens wrote 15 and Jane Austen only wrote 6, but read them all. Um... <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, Emma is a wonderful surprise and definitely the most surprising entry on my list. It's just incredibly pleasant. It breezes by with fun and often endearing ear to it. And it hits well in more in its dramatic moments. 2020 saw me fall head over heels in love with Anya Taylor joy. And it may just have started with this film. And while I'm sure, uh, she won't be in the awards conversation, I think she deserves to be. She's an incredible actor. And I'm really, really excited that she's like on that path to being like a big superstar. Cause she, absolutely deserves it she's got that quality um i still haven't seen this new emma it quality yeah yeah. i still haven't seen this new emma but i will say if you like this one the gwyneth paltrow version is actually really good too Mm. i know it's a different style i can tell that from the trailer but like it's it's a very very good adaptation it's very charming the amy heckerling version is good too yeah clueless Uh, clueless uh number six jojo rabbit uh one of the first films i saw in the year is a double bill with the gentleman which i did not like and thought That's it was a weird cool. double feature. <laughs> and thought it was quite good, but wasn't totally won over. Upon rewatch, I felt like the Grinch, my heart growing three sizes by the end of it. Uh, aside from the dreadfully unfunny Rebel Wilson character, Jojo Rabbit hits pretty beautifully on all cylinders. Often funny, incredibly heartbreaking, and very inspiring. Uh, it's an anti-hate satire that may not be subtle with its message, but uh, when the message is "Don't be a bigot," I can't complain too much. Uh, yeah, I, I I think Jojo Rabbit is a significant like film in terms of like how relevant mm-hmm. how it's telling a story about fascism and using the trappings that we can all agree on mm-hmm. and commenting very explicitly about what's going on right now yeah, yeah. today again not subtle but neither was the great dictator neither <laughs> were a lot of other films that are not neither was the producers but mm-hmm. they you know people don't always get subtlety sometimes you gotta be someone's gotta mm-hmm. hit them over the head 
I liked uh, uh, the director, Taika Waititi, was in- interviewed because he plays a fantasy version of Adolf Hitler in that movie. Yeah, it's the kid's and imaginary the, friend and, and, is Adolf Hitler because he's, mm. the, in the, he's in the cult of personality. Mm. Yeah. And, and But because he's the kid's fantasy, he acts like a kid would imagine Hitler to behave. So yeah. he's, he's not like actually playing Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And uh, in an interview, somebody asked, like, did you, well, like, what sort of your research did you do when you're playing this historic, this, you know, historical monster? Like, what, what sort of study did you have to do? What, what did you do to assure that you were going to be accurate? And Taika Waititi said, I wasn't accurate. Fuck that guy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's not going to do justice to Adolf Hitler. No. <laughs> Good, that's the correct so that's, response. That's the correct Perfect response. Yeah. Uh, anyway, onward. Uh, number five, The Invisible Man. Hey. In the last couple of years, I'm starting to become quite the horror fan. So in my viewing journey, my heart belongs mostly to horror films from the 30s and 40s. But I've come to realize that modern horror is nowhere near as bad as I thought it was. And this year low is good proof of that. Films like The Hunt, St. Maud, and Color Out of Space were all great. But The Invisible Man is truly riveting. If you know where to look, the horror genre is very rarely at a low ebb. Yeah, they're, very they're, rarely. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of uh, trends in like sort of popular horror, pop horror, yeah, or mainstream the horror. The studio that, yeah. horror in particular that sometimes can run its course mm. and get a little unimaginative. But yeah, by yeah, that yeah. point, usually the indie scene is starting to compensate mm. with more creative, more daring stuff. Yeah, so like, and, again, and the in, last the yeah. last decade for like indie films and low budget horror movies has been just an incredibly exciting time. Really amazing mm. last few years in particular mm. for horror, but just in general. Yeah, mm. you can always rely on that genre if you do your research and know where to look because mm. they're not always the most obvious ones. Sometimes you got to right, search around right. a little. Uh, number four, To Five Bloods. Uh, yeah. you, you both love this movie and explain its significance much better than I can, so I'll just say it's a riveting and haunting piece that's both confrontational and educational with one of the top two standout performances of the year in Delroy Lindo. I'm actually surprised I didn't end up on either of our top tens. I was so close on mine. Like, yeah, I, no, just, I, I really... One of the reasons like why I, I didn't said, put I on there was I figured you would. Up, but, but I, have, yeah. I have a bunch of runners up that are, were essentially in, yeah. in the top ten as well. Uh, number three, The Lighthouse. <laughs> Sick of your damn farts. <laughs> oh, you liked me lobster. Lobster farts. Uh, the Lighthouse. Speaking of horror, I tend to like when it's batshit insane and this hits the spot. Oh, how did... How didn't this get Oscar nominations for sound design? I'll never know. It's perhaps the single most atmospheric film I saw this year, creating the most eerie and unsettling situation for our two leads that is terrifying to the core. The cinematography is gorgeous, and it's another knockout performance from Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe can't do otherwise. I've... Especially as he's gotten older. He's just, he's getting better and better, and he's always been good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to give credit where credit is due because I think The Lighthouse is one of the best looking films of the last few years. Mm. Cinematographer, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Yaron Blaschke. Yeah. Yaron so Blaschke, good. incredibly good looking movie. Mm. Holy God. Mm. Mm. Uh, number two is Parasite. Yeah. Uh, I saw this one day before the Oscar ceremony after firmly deciding that I was predicting it to win Best Picture, something I, uh-huh. I stood by once the film finished and right up to that sacred moment when Jane Fonda read it out loud. I've been seeing very little... Uh, I've seen very little of Bong Joon-ho's filmography, but this and Snowpiercer only make me want to dig deeper. Parasite is a thrilling, intense, darkly hilarious film that is captivating. My number one pick is a tie, okay. which may be cheating, but who cares? It's my list. Yeah, yeah he gives a grab. Do what you want. Uh, Never Really, Sometimes Always. Uh, that was the other standout performance for the year. Sydney Flanagan in Never Really, Sometimes Always. Uh... Every little thing, she, every little thing she does in this film is so completely perfect, and I want her to win everything. The film is cold and clinical, quietly riveting, with haunting, haunting realism and absolute genius behind the camera. I love the fluidity of the camera and how it creates an atmosphere of New York City. Yeah, I, I really, really dug. Never really sometimes. Yeah, I need to catch up on that one. 
And uh, my other number one, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yay! Uh, I don't believe in the greatest movie of all... I don't believe in a, quote, greatest movie of all time. <laughs> and I find the idea of discussing it incredibly boring and unnecessary. That said, put a gun to my head and tell me to name the greatest film of all time. And this is in the conversation. Yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is overwhelmingly beautiful. An astonishing piece of cinema where every shot is a painting, every line is a piece of poetry, and every moment is more delectable than the last. Uh, I just rewatched that. Mm. Uh, Michelle uh, had got it for Christmas. Yeah. There's a very nice Criterion Straight collection. to Criterion. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, no debate, nothing. Yeah. Just put it out, but it goes right to... Um, that movie is a, that movie is an all-timer. Yeah. It's an absolute all-timer. So, gonna, gonna, gonna only get better with age. Yeah, it, was, it was my number one last yeah. year. Yeah. Because that's when it came out here in the States. It was my number... It, I can't remember if it was my number two, and now it was. It got higher if I saw it after I did my top ten list. But mm. either way, mm. uh, it, I love Little Women, but I think it would be my number one now. <laughs> okay. I think I think I think, I think I Little just, Women was your number one. Number one, last no, year, Little yeah. Women was my number one. I yeah. remember that. I just couldn't remember if Portrait of a Lady on Fire was like close to it, but mm. I hadn't like settled in. I had only just watched it, mm. or if it was, or if I watched it just a little too late. I honestly can't mm. remember, but I would say mm. that if I did that list now, mostly it would be the same. A few things higher or lower. Mm. One or two might have popped from, from my runners up, but Portrait of Lady on Fire would be my number one. Um, speaking of good double features, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and The Lighthouse go really well <laughs> together because they're both about two people alone together on a lost island. Mm-hmm. One is about two men. One is about two women. The two women fall madly in love and discuss art and philosophy and sex and beauty. And the two men like drink piss and kill each other it's like <laughs> it's just great it's, it's great it's, yeah. it's kind of a perfect dichotomy isn't it yeah. Yeah. there's a lot of that now that that is programming as criticism there you go yeah, yeah. you get the masculine feminine dichotomy yeah. uh, anyway that's my last hope all is well with you guys and i can't wait for another year of excellent podcasts yours rj thank you rj it's yeah. a great list and, and, and again if anyone else wants to share their lists by all means, please do. We might not have time to read them all, but we'd love to hear about them because uh, we love movies. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening to us, you probably do too. Um, we got one more to take us out on. Oh, uh, sure. Hang on. My, my phone booped out here for a second. Boop. Terribly Boop. sorry. Um, here is a letter from uh, Name Redacted. Okay. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Rock, Paper, Scissor, McCool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was watching the documentary on HBO called Showbiz Kids and Will Wheaton from Stand By Me had said that he remembers feeling so bad when Roger Ebert reviewed his movie The Curse and said that uh, Will Wheaton's acting was horrible. Mm. So as two film critics yourselves, do you think critics uh, show or judge child actors or teenagers acting performances differently than adults? And how do you guys go about criticizing kid performances in movies? Thank you for taking my question. Uh, P.S. I finally watched the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. Oh. And I can now say it is one of my favorite movies ever. Hey. I found it very relatable. I wrestled throughout my childhood into high school and uh, wrestled, that is, as, as an activity. Uh, and if only I had a Lawrence Fishburne character in my life to show me how fun it can be again, then maybe I wouldn't have quit. I know it's Bibb's favorite movie. If it wasn't for you, Bibb. If it wasn't for you, Bibbs, I might not have watched it yet. I'm really glad you did. It's currently mm-hmm. on Netflix, by the way. They, I think they added it because um, Queen's Gambit was so popular, so oh, they want to add more chess stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's I, it is my favorite movie. Mm-hmm. It's just I find it flawless. Uh, mm-hmm. But ask answer your question about child actors um, in criticism. So a lot of movies have child actors, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tricky to criticize a child actor. It's certainly nothing you do to their face. Oh, like no, like no. if if an actor asked me like hey what did you think of my performance in this and I thought they weren't very good I'd be like you know I thought you were a little over the top 
You know, like I, you, I would, you, made, you made some choices I didn't quite understand. Yeah, I, yeah. I would try to be diplomatic about it, but I would be honest. And so, uh, a child actor, on the other hand, is a sort of thing where, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've wrestled with this because you want to be honest. Mm. But I feel like what it boils down to is, if a child actor isn't giving a great performance in a movie, then I think that is more on the director. Yeah. And the and the filmmakers in general, because they either didn't either didn't direct the child actor very well, or or they they did the casting is also up to them. So yeah. they could have cast a different actor. Perhaps. That's also a thing. Again, the 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 child actor either wasn't ready for this kind of role, mm. or wasn't adequately prepared for it, even if they're very very talented. Um, and um, that that's it's on somebody. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, you don't want to be you don't want to be cruel about uh, uh, kid actors but you also have to be honest like you know um if if a child actor is bringing the movie down mm. like, um, uh, i remember when uh the the more recent annie film came yeah out. with kuvanjane wallace yeah. from um beasts of the southern wild mm. and it just seemed like she was not ready for this all singing all dancing no, thing no, you know no, she, she's very she, very she, charming she just, actor but what well, wasn't in place for that movie no um or uh, or sometimes uh, and sometimes just the role sucks like mm-hmm. i remember um um, I wasn't uh, uh, a fan of, like, oftentimes, like, kid sidekick characters. Yeah. Like, rub me the wrong way. I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, mm. I feel like the kid in The Mummy Returns was actually pretty good, but normally that would be, like, the kind of role that would annoy me. Like, hey, we're, we're love, having a kid because yeah. kids. I love the way they played with that in uh, Iron Man 3. Oh, yeah, you I thought it was cool, yeah. You thought for a bit, oh, he's going to have a kid sidekick, and he's really interested, and he just, like, brushes the kid off. <laughs> We're not doing that plot points. I was like, (laughs) I know you're not going to come with me. Why? Because we're connected. Like, he's really, like, smart. He's, like, complete dick to that kid. It's hilarious. Yeah. And then, of course, he... He makes good at the end because he buys the kid a bunch of stuff. And also the kid gives as good as he gets. The kid is is also incredibly bright and cynical and it works. So, so, but again, uh, those situations, though, are typically about the the way a child character is employed in mm. the movie and has not doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the child actor. Yeah. You know? And and I, I understand it's difficult in the social media age for yeah. a critic to be cruel because uh, a lot of the people have like the people who work on these movies have a lot more direct access to us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of critics I've noticed have started to try try to say I'm not gonna like write negative reviews anymore. Which doesn't make any sense to me. What if you hate a movie? Mm-hmm. Got to write a negative you review be of a movie you hate. Um, and 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 a really negative reaction to a movie can be incredibly mm-hmm. honest. But mm-hmm. I think I, I am okay with, and I am starting to mm-hmm. try to use my negative criticism. My, my when I have to be harsh, try to use it very sparingly. I'm not just going to throw mm-hmm. it out if just because I don't like a movie. I want right. to make sure that I actually like virulently don't like a movie before I'm really going to spew. Um, so like, I'm, I'm going to try to be uh, over time. I think, I think we all can be a little bit more diplomatic while still being completely honest. I, yeah, I I don't want too many. It definitely shouldn't be personal. Never make it personal. And also the critics should maybe remind themselves that they're not necessarily going to work with these people. Yeah. And you don't, you don't have to pretend like they're, they're your friends. If somebody gives a bad performance, and you're a critic, it's your your job to say that they gave a bad performance. True. I agree with that 100%. And again, yeah, we're not trying to, 
it's again if you're a critic on the side and what you really want to do is be in the industry then you shouldn't be a critic because you're trying mm. to you run the risk of like trying to preserve relationships yeah. with people rather than just be honest about the film and that's mm. that's the fundamental most important thing you can do as a critic is to be forthright mm. um However, again, I, th- I think it is possible to be forthright without being a dick about it. And I think it's very easy yeah. for the purposes of entertainment uh-huh. to use hyperbole. Mm-hmm. And when you use hyperbole with negativity, you run the risk of, A, being an asshole, mm-hmm. which we shouldn't be just for its own sake. Yeah. And, 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 uh, also, and, it, also, and also overselling it, which can also be a problem. Right. It, it's, the, it's the overselling that's actually an issue. And if you write anything even vaguely negative, somebody's going to come after you for being an asshole. Yeah. So, um, you just have to be honest. You have to be, you have to, uh, be able to stand by what you said, stand by what you said, yeah. be a, a straightforward, just lay it out yeah. as plainly as you can and let the chips fall where they may. And yeah. if you end up meeting that actor in person, you have to be able to like, honestly say to their face, yes, I did have some issues with yeah. your performance in that film. I may, maybe you're capable of something else. I feel like there's a role out there for you. I usually but be to, honest about how you're going to, I usually you know, try to, them. I usually try to add nuance, be like, Hey, yeah. let's like, like for example, hmm. we recently reviewed tenant. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, I liked it a little bit more than you did, but it's neither of us think it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, and I said just flat out, hmm. I think Kenneth Branagh gives a terrible performance in that movie. Hmm. I think he is over the top in a way that is completely outsized with the role that he's playing mm. and the type of movie that he's in. Um, I think he is desperately trying to add some entertainment value to a movie that is otherwise very cold and stodgy, but I think it's a massive miscalculation. Mm. You know who's a brilliant fucking actor? Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Does, yeah. I Again, whether it was all his idea or Christopher Nolan's idea, people make creative decisions all the time and they're not always brilliant, are they? People make people make mistakes. People miscalculate. People mismodulate. People just sometimes are on a weird wavelength and they're mm-hmm. trying something new and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Especially actors who work a lot and yeah. try to play a wide variety of roles, or they play you know, weird characters. Sometimes and they're they just inventing more, stuff. Sometimes their passion is more in one place than another, and they feel more comfortable just playing around mm-hmm. when they're doing something mainstream. So mm-hmm. um, there you go. So. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do think, again, it's a, it, it's a child actor. It's not their fucking fault. Mm-hmm. And I think we could all stand to be a little bit more considerate of the way that we express ourselves honestly. Yeah. I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah. That, that is fair. Yeah. Um, okay. So that is, we've got mail for this week. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Um, once again, thank you, everybody, for... Uh, all of your condolences about Sergio. Um, it's been really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad that we have these podcasts so that I can be distracted and compartmentalize and just sort of focus on this one thing because we miss our little guy. Yeah. So thank you yeah. so much to everybody. Once again, you're all very, very kind. And uh, thank you, everybody, for writing in. Thank you, everybody, for sharing your thoughts, your passions, your questions, your love about film. Uh, and uh, again, if you want to join in, if you want to email us, the email is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at critically acclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, where we have a ton of exclusive shows. 
including shows about uh, Star Trek, all our yesterdays. Talked about it on this week's episode. Shows about uh, Batman, the 1960s Batman. We got shows about uh, uh, stuff that is not on Disney Plus but should be. We just did an episode about Condor Man. Hmm. We do commentary tracks this month. Funnily enough, while we're talking about Disney, we're doing a goofy movie as selected by our patrons. Uh, we do a podcast about the Oscars, a whole bunch of stuff. So it's mm-hmm. patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We would love to see you there. And if not, please subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend. That would help as well. Mm-hmm. So thank you, everybody. Once again, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>